So for those of you who've joined us either here or online last week, you know we're in the middle of the uh, Under the Radar series, which is where we look at all the most underrated, underread, and overlooked books of the Bible. And it's an intermittent series that we fit in in between our larger series. Uh, and this time around, we're looking at the Minor Prophets. And uh, again, last week, um, Isaac took us through Jonah. Uh, and if you missed that one, I highly recommend it to you. Uh, if you remember, the point is not about the fish. There is so much more to the story than that, and um, Isaac did a fantastic job unpacking that uh, for us. We'll be looking at uh, Habakkuk this week. Uh, AJ will take us through Malachi the week after, and then we've got a guest speaker from Wall's End, uh, a Wall's End Church. I can't remember which one it is exactly, uh, but she'll be taking us through Haggai. So all of these books that you probably have heard about but don't remember a lot about, um, we'll, we'll tackle over the next few weeks. So Habakkuk today, um, Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets, uh, 12 minor prophets as opposed to the four major prophets. Um, and the minor prophets are not given that name, it sounds a bit pejorative, uh, but they're not kind of second rate or less accurate prophets than the major prophets were. It was a name that Augustine gave uh, to those 12 um, prophets, uh, just to group them together because their books are very short. And so in the Hebrew Bible, in fact, all 12 are together in one book called the Book of the Twelve or the Book of um, the Prophets. Um, and Habakkuk that we'll look at today was a musician and a prophet, uh, was in the temple. Uh, and the action takes place around 600 BC uh, in the kingdom of Judah. Um, and I don't blame you if you don't remember anything about Habakkuk. Um, I've been a Christian most of my life and I really hadn't registered much about this book before I prepared uh, the message. So let me take you through. We'll do a quick synopsis so you know what the action covers, um, and then we'll get into it and unpack it. So um, in chapter one, Habakkuk asks actually a very modern question. He looks at the society around him, the Israelite society, and he says to God, why do you tolerate wrong? Conflict abounds, the law is paralyzed, Justice is perverted. He looks at his society and he is not happy. There is so much injustice, violence, conflict, and he cries out to God for an explanation. And God replies to him and says, I'm raising up the Babylonians to execute judgment. And it's probably hard for us to get a sense of what that means, but to him, the Babylonians were a godless, violent, barbaric people. And so he replies to God, why do you tolerate the treacherous? Like, why are you using them to execute your judgment? Because they're a thousand times worse than we are. And in chapter 2, God explains his answer. But um, it's in very old-fashioned language. It's the language of lament. And so it, it doesn't quite strike a chord with us in modern terms, so we'll unpack it. But God basically um, spends most of chapter 2 speaking five woes to the Babylonians. So again, woe is not a term we use often, but it's a warning of coming judgment. So God is speaking in the first person, speaking directly, and spends most of chapter two declaring these five woes on the Babylonians. Um, so we'll unpack that. And then seemingly out of nowhere, chapter three is Habakkuk breaking out into this song of praise. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, um, but it comes out of nowhere, he praises God, and then before we know it, the book's over, 
three chapters long and that's it. Um, and it, it, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense when you first read it through. So you have to really um, mine it and take time to um, ask the Holy Spirit, actually, uh, to unlock the meaning. And there's a lot there uh, to think about. So that's the overview. And um, it probably helps to give you a bit of history. So the historical context, those of you who went to Sunday school as, as children uh, will know some of this history. A lot of the Old Testament is stories of the people of Israel, uh, how God chooses a people and raises them up. And so you will remember he promises Abraham that he will uh, raise a people. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And they come together under King Saul. So that's around 1000 BC. And then King David is the second king, uh, and Solomon is his son. But then that's, that's it for the Israelites sticking together as a whole group. Human nature being human nature, they start to bicker. And when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne, 10 of the tribes of Israel say, we don't accept your kingship, and they break away. So they become the blue part up there, the, the northern kingdom of Israel. The last, <clears throat> the last two tribes of Judah, Judah and Benjamin, stick together, accept the kingship of Rehoboam, and they become the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. So already, after just three kings, the Israelites are fighting <clears throat> among themselves, can't agree, and they split into the northern and the southern kingdom. Now, for the next 200 years, they keep fighting and warring with each other. So, um, despite being brothers and being of the same family, they can't agree, and they fight for 200 years, until the kingdom of Judah actually asks Assyria to attack the northern kingdom. And they do, and they completely wipe it out. So that's around uh, 700 BC. And so by the time we come to Habakkuk, which is 600 BC, the northern kingdom has been wiped out and the kingdom of Judah is left on its own. So um, by the time we get to the action in Habakkuk, Judah is um, this little kingdom caught up in a bigger geopolitical picture. So by this time, the Assyrians, who had been a superpower, are kind of on the decline. Egypt is coming to their help, but the new rising superpower is Babylon. So you have these three players, Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon, fighting between themselves, all these power plays, and this little kingdom of Judah is caught up in the middle. And um, for quite a few years, each of these three foreign superpowers installs their own king in Judah, kind of a puppet king. They last a year or two, and then they're replaced by another uh, foreign power. So it's this time of great political instability. And so I think if we understand that context, it seems very similar to, to our day. In some ways, Australia is a bit like Judah. We're a, a bit player on the world stage. We get caught up in all of ge these geopolitical power plays. So, you know, Putin declares war on Russia and suddenly the price of wheat goes up. Uh, uh, you know, Africa's in famine, our bread costs more. There's not enough petrol to go around, the prices go up. Um, you know, China puts sanctions on our products and suddenly we have nowhere to sell. And we get caught up in um, all of these forces that are beyond us to control. 
And we look at our society, and much like Israel, we, we think this is not the way things should be. Like just this week on the ABC, three million Australians are falling below the poverty line because the cost of living is going up so high. So we look at that and say, you know, who's looking after the poor? Who's looking after the widow? How are people going to survive? Why are people unemployed? We get caught up in all of these bigger geopolitical tensions and we ask God, where are you? This is not the kind of society that you had for us. So in many ways, Habakkuk is asking a very modern question and one that I think resonates with, with what we um, experience today. So if you keep that kind of historical context in mind, you'll understand uh, Habakkuk's question. You know, why, why do you tolerate wrong God? He says, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. The law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So, you know, I, I think it's words that we could speak to God uh, today about the injustice and the violence that we see in our world. And then God replies with a very surprising answer. He says, I'm raising up the Babylonians to execute judgment. And by, by God's own admission, if you read the rest of the, the chapter, he calls them ruthless, impetuous, a law to themselves. They promote their own honor, and they are guilty people. So God recognizes the nature of the Babylonians, but he still says, I'm going to use them to execute judgment. And Habakkuk is obviously taken aback. He says, why would you ever choose them? Why do you tolerate the treacherous to execute your judgment? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So to get a sense of the, the emotional impact that this would have had on Habakkuk, it would be, I think, like saying to the Taiwanese that the Chinese will execute judgment on them, or telling the Ukrainians that the Russians will execute judgment on them, God's judgment. It just would have made no sense to Habakkuk at all. And, and he replies to God, this doesn't make any sense. Why are you acting this way? And to be honest, he gets a bit stroppy about it. So if he says, I will look to see what God will say to me and what answer I am to give to the people. So he, he basically says to God, I don't get what you're doing here, and I'm not going to move until you give me an answer, and an answer that I like. So he's, he's being very honest uh, with God. And again, if, we, if you read between the lines, it's almost like he wants an intellectual answer from God. Like he wants God to, exp as if God sees the world as a chess piece. Like he wants an explanation where God says, I'm, I'm weakening the Assyrians, I'm moving in the Babylonians, that'll create a power vacuum here, I'm going to move this group in here. He wants an intellectual answer. And God doesn't answer that way. He gives him a very different kind of answer. Am I holding the microphone all right? Or? Yeah, we're great. Okay. So he gives him a very different kind of answer. And, and most of that second chapter, as I said, are the five woes, the, the five warnings of judgment that he declares on the Babylonians. And if we read between the lines, God is actually giving Habakkuk some deep spiritual principles for how to navigate times of suffering and distress and what is actually happening. So if we read behind them, let's take them through. I think there are 
four principles that God reveals to Habakkuk about navigating difficult times and making sense of difficult times. Principle number one is that God's time frame is different to ours. He says, the revelation awaits an appointed time. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Now, at first, that doesn't make a lot of sense. First, God says, wait for it. And then he says, it won't delay. And this is a very Hebrew Old Testament way of speaking, which is to pair two opposites that mean the same thing. It would be like us saying, God saying, things are going to happen at exactly the right time, not a moment too soon and not a moment too late. It's that kind of um, play on, on words. So, and, and what we see is that the revelation that Habakkuk has here is that the Babylonians will, in their turn, wipe out the kingdom of Judah very soon, but he doesn't live to see that. So he prophesies it, but it's only after he dies that that prophecy actually comes to, to fruition. So he never sees God's word happen. And, and it's very clear that God's time frame is very different to our time frame. So that's the first principle. Second principle is to live with an eye to God's faithfulness. Probably the most famous verse in the book of Habakkuk is this one, where God says the Babylonians are puffed up, but the righteous man will live by his faithfulness. And that, that verse is actually quoted three times in the New Testament. First in Romans 1.17, then Galatians 3.11, then Hebrews 10.37, where it's quoted as the righteous will live by faith. Now that's interesting because in the New Testament, it's written in Greek. So the, the righteous will live by faith. Faith seems like an abstract thing, doesn't it? It's like an abstract principle. It's we're the ones who generate faith. It's not God who... God doesn't have faith he, he, to believe in himself. It's something that we have. And so we take it to mean the righteous will live by faith as if it's dependent on something we generate, on our own faith. But the verse that is actually being quoted in Habakkuk in the Hebrew, not the Greek, is actually the righteous will live by his faithfulness. And, and the faith, our faithfulness is a reflection of God's faithfulness. So I think the distinction, there's something lost in translation here between Hebrew and Greek. And what it, I think it's saying is that when times get hard, we root ourselves not in our own faith, but in God's faithfulness. It's his character that is unchanging and eternal and everlasting. It's not the faith that we generate that gets us through. It's his character and his faithfulness that, that gets us through. Does that make sense? Principle number three is even when we feel powerless, God works through us. So we read in verse six of chapter two, will not all the captives taunt Babylon with ridicule and scorn, saying woe to him. So what's happening here is God is saying that the five woes that will happen to Babylon will be spoken to them, not by God himself, but through the people who have been made captive. The Israelites, even after they've been vanquished and conquered, will be the ones to speak God's word of judgment to the conquering, to the victors, if you will, to the Babylonians. Now, I think that's really powerful. And it made me think about um, the black slaves in the American South. You know, at the time when they were enslaved and oppressed, they looked back to the Old Testament. These stories were powerful in a way 
that gave them hope and gave them power and gave them a voice when they were voiceless. So you have to remember that when Babylon conquered a, a people, they were completely wiped out, like they were barbaric. So they would come in, they would enslave the fathers and the children, they would rape the women, they would destroy the temples, they would take whatever they wanted, they would just kill people. So when the Babylonians conquered you, you disappeared off the face of the earth, basically. And we have the story in Second Kings that when this prophecy actually comes true, after Habakkuk has died, they capture the last king of um, Judah, the kingdom of Judah, which is Zedekiah. So they take Zedekiah, they take his, his sons, and then they execute the sons in front of Zedekiah, and then they gouge his eyes out so that the last thing he saw was his own children being killed. Like that's how barbaric they were. So when Babylon conquers you, you are wiped out. But God is saying that even after they are conquered, he will use them to speak his words of judgment to the conquering people. And that is incredibly powerful, that even when we feel powerless and voiceless, God is still working through us to execute his judgment and his designs. Does that make sense? And then we get to the fourth principle, which is to recognize the idols that are at work. And this one I think is worth spending some time on. Well, the whole chapter is worth spending time on because God is speaking in the first voice and speaking directly. So whenever God does that, it's important to listen. But most of that second chapter is the, the five woes that he speaks to Babylon. And um, they are quite long and flowery, and they're in the language of lament. So the, the meaning doesn't really come through at first reading. So what I'm going to give you here is the Reader's Digest condensed version in one sentence so that the message actually jumps out. So the first woe is, woe to him who piles up stolen goods. The people who are left will plunder you. So the modern translation is, if you make wealth your God, you will become poor. That makes sense? The second woe is, woe to him who sets his nest on high. You will end up shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The modern translation of that is, if you make status your god or your idol, you will end up shamed. The third woe is, woe to him who builds with bloodshed. He will exhaust himself for nothing. Again, the modern translation could be, if you make violence your god or your idol, you will end up powerless and defeated. And then we get to the fourth woe. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor. You will be filled with shame and be exposed. Again, the modern interpretation, if you make indulgence or excess or pleasure your God, you will be exposed. And then we get to the fifth woe, which is the key to understanding the first four. So the fifth woe is the one that gives us the principle for unlocking what God is saying here. He says, woe to him who says to wood, come to life. There is no breath in it. And, and the key, the modern interpretation we can um, make of that is, if you make anything your God other than God, it will suck the life out of you. Um, and I, the deep spiritual principle here that God is revealing to Habakkuk is every idol requires sacrifice and worship. It will always promise something in return. But the, the, the cycle that happens is that 
an idol will require more and more from you and give you less and less until it takes everything from you and delivers nothing. In the end, an idol will always suck the life out of you. And it's easy for us to look at that passage and say, well, we don't have idols anymore. We don't engage in idolatry. We don't do sculptures and put them up and worship them. But we are much more sophisticated in that our idols are much more subtle. And the, 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 the principle here is idols require sacrifice. Sacrifice means your time and your money. Everybody worships in the sense that they give their time and money to something. And they, you, know, you, you don't spend money or, or time on something unless you think it is of value. So even people who don't consider themselves religious assign value to something. That's what worship means. The, the old English root of worship is worth-ship, what you give worth and value to. So if we want to um, understand what are the idols in our lives, we follow the trail of how we spend our time and our money. And that will point us to what our idol is. And an idol usually is something good. It can be family, it can be a job, it can be uh, good things. But when a good thing takes the place that only God should have, it doesn't become such a good thing. Um, and I, I think probably this spiritual principle was most articulately um, spoken actually by, an, by a secular author. So this fellow is J David Foster Wallace. He was a secular author in the US. Um, he, he gave the, an address to the Harvard graduating class in 2005 called This is Walter. And even though he was not a Christian, I think he saw this principle of idolatry and spiritual, the spiritual principle of idolatry very perceptively. <clears throat> and this is what he said to the Harvard class. I'll read it out to you and you can find it anywhere on the internet, it's still around. He said this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad, petty, unsexy ways every day. I don't know about you, but to me, that is such a powerful uh, synthesis of, of this spiritual principle about recognizing idols and what we value. And unfortunately, he, he, he was trying, he knew that there was something spiritual. So I think twice he tried to join a Catholic church and do their equivalent of confirmation class, and he failed, and he wasn't admitted, and he played around with the Mennonite church, 
uh, for a while, but then in the end he committed suicide at the age of 46. Which just goes to show you, you can, you can see these spiritual principles with your mind, but unless the Holy Spirit imprints them on your heart, um, they don't have any power. So anyway, so now that we understand what God actually said in chapter th 2, it's not that surprising to understand why Habakkuk breaks out in a song of worship to God in chapter 3. God has, has just revealed these five woes and these deep spiritual principles about not worshiping idols. And so it's natural that Habakkuk breaks out in the song of worship to the one true God. And so when he does that, he does this kind of mashup of all the, the biggest and best victories of Israel in the Old Testament. He kind of puts them all together in this, this overwhelming song of praise to God. <clears throat> and I think what's, what's interesting here is not so much the content of that song, but the fact that he frames his praise in a song. He's a musician. And so this is the most intimate form of communic communication that he can give to God. Um, he composes a song of praise. And it's interesting to see that after this mashup, he gets to a point that is a very different Habakkuk than the Habakkuk we meet in chapter 1. So you remember in chapter 1, he kind of says to God, this isn't making sense to me, and I'm going to wait here until you give me an answer. But in the Habakkuk that we see in chapter 3 actually ends his song of praise by saying, Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. It's this amazing song of affirmation that God is present and active even when we don't see it. And so the, God, the, the Habakkuk of chapter 1 is a very different Habakkuk in, the, in chapter 3, that this process of wrestling with God, asking the hard question, waiting for an answer, grappling and really listening to God, and going through that difficult time, changes him in a way that he could not have anticipated. It is not an intellectual answer anymore. It is something that has changed in his own spirit. And so I think I came away with a whole new appreciation of what those short three chapters actually represent. What we have in Habakkuk is someone who asks the tough questions, who takes the time to listen to God, and when God reveals something to him, he, he's revealing some deep spiritual principles about how God works uh, in the world and about not worshiping idols, but rec re learning to recognize and worship the one true God. There is some, there are moments of deep intimacy that have obviously happened when we navigate difficult times uh, with God. They're not intellectual things that necessarily happen, but they are things in the spirit and in the heart that God works in us when we go through difficult times with him uh, rather than, than against him. So because we want to be here, uh, not just hearers of the word, but doers, Obviously, these are the questions that will be in the study notes in your, your um, small groups this week. But um, I have to say I wanted to focus on, on the third question, which is the one I found most challenging, which is what are the idols in your own life? If you follow that trail of how you spend your time and money, where does that lead you and what is God saying to you? So I'll leave you with that question. <laughs> Hopefully it's not too confronting. 
but as, as the uh, music group come up, uh, maybe just sit with that question and let the Holy Spirit reveal to you um, what he wants you to, to know.